Father, we thank you for your powerful word, for the word that was incarnate and came and dwelt among us, and for the word that was spoken to us to save us if we would believe and receive the gift of salvation. Uh, thank you for Jesus Christ, and thank you for him confronting our the dark recesses of our hearts, even the, the things that would offend us most to show us our spiritual poverty and enslavement and blindness and the way forward to a place of grace and unending joy. Will you help us this morning to believe and receive his words? We pray in his mighty name, amen. It's important to make a good first impression. Has anyone ever given you that advice? Uh, maybe it's to a job interview. Maybe it's a first date with somebody you hope might turn into your spouse one day. Maybe it's the first day of class. Make sure you bring the apple for the teacher. It's important to make a big first impression. Uh, I, all of us feel it. I think preachers, being the odd creatures that we are, feel it more than others do. Uh, the first time you preach somewhere, especially like a candidating scenario where a church is evaluating you, it's... You feel the need to make a big first, a good first impression. Um, I heard the story of one particular pastor. He was a uh, hot stuff in California. Young guy uh, came in to a candidating situation. A church was evaluating him to call to potentially be their pastor, and he came in with a lot of confidence that's quickly evaporated. Uh, he was getting up to preach and. As he got up, he noticed some very well-known evangelical scholars sitting on the front row with their spouses. And he thought, ooh, I don't know if I chose the right sermon. You remember that he chose this sermon more because his daughter liked one of the illustrations than because it was a really good sermon. So he was a little nervous. They got up, he started preaching, maybe a little hot under the collar when something really went off. The fire alarm. Beep, 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 totally messed him up. Someone managed to turn it off. It was an, a false alarm. He's trying to regain his composure. At this point, he said he's sweating profusely. It's not going well. He's forcing himself back on track, and wouldn't you know, the fire alarm goes off again. Well, that pattern repeated itself a total of 15 times. And by the end of it, he was utterly convinced, I'm driving back to California, and I will never hear from anyone on that search committee again. Now, the strange thing is in that case, they ended up calling him to be the pastor, and he ended up serving there for over three decades. Uh, so sometimes, first impressions aren't quite what you expect them to be when they don't go well particularly. Uh, you might be surprised to learn that Jesus had a first impression that on the surface didn't seem like it went all that well. Uh, he was a well-known preacher, finally went back home to preach to a hometown crowd, and, well, let's just say they weren't exactly receptive to the message that he brought. Uh, that's because his message, not that it wasn't delivered well, or, or not that anything he said was untrue, but because of the implications it had on the hearts of the people listening. Now, that's still the case with Jesus' words today. They reveal who he is, his power to save. And they reveal who we are in our spiritual poverty. Uh, that's why it's so important for us today to, to know that Jesus has the power to save and to believe his words and to receive the grace that only he can give us. That's what I hope we'll come away with this morning. 
to know that we have someone, Jesus, who could save us. But we must believe his words and receive that salvation. Well, we'll see that in two sections this morning as we move through this passage in 14 through 21. The words of Jesus reveal his power to save. The words of Jesus reveal his power to save. And then second in 22 through 30, the words of Jesus reveal our spiritual poverty. The words of Jesus reveal our spiritual poverty. Let's begin in that first section, 14 through 21. The, the words of Jesus reveal his power to save. Uh, we are in a new section of Luke's gospel. Luke, the author, wants us to know that. Uh, he, in the past, are all the things that are the story behind the story, uh, the angels and the virgin birth and the infancy narratives. Uh, also are behind us are the uh, qualifications of Jesus, his baptism and his testing out in the wilderness. And now we get to his ministry. And it turns out Jesus at his core is a preacher. Uh, verses 14 through 16 give us a kind of a summary, 14 and 15, a summary of what he's doing. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Uh, Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit for a particular task. To go about as an itinerant preacher. Uh, the Puritans loved a, a word, unction, to describe preaching that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that sense that the wind is in a preacher's sails and that the words he speaks are God's word directly to you in the recesses of your heart. Uh, well, there's no one that had the Holy Spirit without measure like Jesus. And there's no preacher like the very word of God incarnate. Uh, Jesus preached with a power this earth had never seen. And as a result, his fame was growing. Uh, Jesus, as he went from place to place preaching and doing miracles, uh, started to have a buzz, started to follow him around. Well, all that leads up to the, the first example that Luke gives us of Jesus's ministry, which is his hometown sermon. That's uh, 16 through 30. He comes back to Nazareth. Remember, Nazareth is the middle of nowhere. It's literally branch town. It's out in the sticks. Nobody goes there intentionally. Nobody of note is from there. That is except for Jesus. Well, Jesus has finally made a name for himself, and he comes back to town. And we no notice that he ends up in the synagogue for worship on Sabbath, as was his custom. Now, before we go any further, just I think a little aside that's worth noting here. If anyone had an excuse to skip assembling together with other believers, you would think it would be Jesus, right? And what's his pattern? He, he goes to the local place, the local house to assemble with God's people. And what they did was very similar to what we do. Singing songs of worship, reading from the Bible, prayer. Uh, if anyone gives us an example to follow at this point, it's Jesus. Let's be a people that assemble together regularly. Well, in this synagogue worship that was occurring, there was a, a sort of tradition. If a visiting rabbi came to town, he was invited to have a reading from the prophets as a part of the service. Um, and he could choose any section he wanted. And then afterward, he would give an explanation or an exposition of what it meant. Well, Jesus is selected for this honor. And I have to think when the service bulletin came out that people must have been a little excited to hear from him. 
So what text does he read from? Well, none other than Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, maybe a, a shade of Isaiah 58 in there. So it tells us that he enrolled the scroll to the place, and then he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After he was done, he rolled up the scroll, and then he sat down, which was the sign he was about to begin his explanation. Now, at this point, I'm sure the people gathered had some expectations. This was not an unheard of passage for Jews in this day. It was a pretty popular one. Because it was understood to be a messianic passage. Uh, a passage about the anointed one, as described in the verse 18. Uh, the chosen one, specially set apart from God, who was going to do something. And uh, they understood what the Messiah was going to do in largely political, military categories. Uh, he was going to come and set people free, free from the bondage of the Romans. He was going to knock off the chains of oppression over those that had control over God's people and were occupying it. Uh, he was going to usher in the year of the Lord's favor as all those people that have been holding God's people down for so long finally got theirs. A day of vengeance was coming. So they were likely expecting a, a message, something like this. Oh, sure, it's bad right now. I know the Roman soldiers treated you really bad this week. But take heart. Messiah is going to come any day now. And when he does, they are going to get theirs. And we are going to get ours. Uh, that's the sort of message they were expecting. But that's not the sort of message that they got. What is it that Jesus says in verse 21? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I think it's likely that Jesus said more than just that one sentence. The way that that sentence is written and then later on the gracious words that they describe him saying. I think it implies a longer sermon. But at the very least, what Jesus has said to them is that he is the Messiah. Now that Messiah you're waiting for, you're looking right at him. Uh, but the sort of Messiah that he is, is not the sort of Messiah they were expecting. Now we don't know exactly how he put the message together, but I think we can, from the verses he, that Luke records, I think we can reconstruct the basics. Uh, he is the sort of Messiah that proclaims good news to the poor. Uh, back in the Old Testament, the poor are often associated with the righteous in a destitute state. Uh, people who have very little are more likely to realize their need for God's help. And so those who are poor is a shorthand of saying, those who have faith and are waiting on God to provide. Uh, Jesus declares a gospel, good news, for the spiritually poor. Those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt before God. Uh, we don't see any examples of Jesus going around lifting people out of material poverty. But we have lots of examples of him coming to people who are spiritually on the outside and giving them the riches of heaven. 
Second, he's sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. That word for captives is what would be used for a prisoner of war, someone in slavery. Uh, Once again, we don't have any record of Jesus going and literally setting slaves free, as in removing them from the legal obligation of slaves to their masters. But we do see him freeing people from the slavery to their sins. We see him breaking the shackles upon the human heart as he pays the penalty for sins and clears us of the guilt that our sins bring. He's, uh, it's said that he, the, he would reco- uh, proclaim the recovery of sight to the blind. Now Jesus will do miracles and will actually do this. He, he will actually make blind people see again and that's a, a great good to them when that happens. And yet even those miracles, they are just signs to accompany his message, to point to the reality of Jesus opening spiritual eyes, making people for the first time able to see God as he really is and to see themselves as they stand before God as they really are. He's also to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Uh, the Jew in that day, the, the Roman system would have seemed oh so cruel and unfair. They would have daily examples of ways they were being mistreated and grievances. Uh, it's right to call that oppression. And yet Jesus didn't start a social revolution. He did not try to overthrow Rome. But he did start a revolution to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and the devil And all those who are being oppressed by demonic forces, didn't he? So we'll see see those themes be teased out more and more in Luke's gospel. Uh, All of this is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that's a, a reference to Leviticus 25. To something called the year of Jubilee. The Israelites were commanded once every 50 years... They were supposed to have this special year to commemorate the freedom they had that God had given them in the promised land. Uh, uh, During that 50th year celebration, they were to cancel all the debts. If you owed money, overnight you owed none. They were supposed to set free all the slaves. If you had sold yourself into slavery to keep yourself from starving, on the year of Jubilee you would be set free. And they were supposed to return the lands back to their original family owners. If you had sold your family farm of the portion that God gave during the conquest, the year of Jubilee, your family got that land back. Now, in all of Israelite history, we have no record that they ever celebrated the year of Jubilee. And yet, Leviticus 25 is not a waste because it's fulfilled in Jesus His coming is the promised era. It is the grace of God, the the time to celebrate because it is the day salvation has come. Salvation for the worst of sinners, the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually blind, the spiritually chained, and those who have been spiritually mistreated. All of them find on this day a reason to celebrate. The Messiah is here. The message he preaches is the best of all news. Now, what Jesus said is the best message that the world had ever heard at that point. And yet, as we'll see in the next section of the sermon, it is not the message the people wanted to hear. 
Uh, their expectations were somewhere else. They wanted something more tangible, a revolution that they could get behind that would change their every day. I think there's an application for us today along these same lines. That if we're not careful, that we can lose the center of our ministry the way that they were missing the center of Jesus' ministry. Remember, at his core, Jesus is a preacher. He goes around preaching the kingdom of God coming, and then after his death and resurrection, he gives his disciples the, the good news of the message to preach of salvation through his death on the cross, the resurrection from the dead. I was, uh, years ago, given a book entitled Jesus for President. And um, on its surface, it sounds like a good idea. I mean, I, maybe you don't have a lot of faith in politicians. You'd be forgiven for that. Um, surely Jesus would be a better choice than all the people we have been choosing down through the ages, right? Never sins, perfect wisdom, God in human flesh. Who could be better? But the, as you unpack the book, you realize it's about more than how life would be better if Jesus was, in fact, president. It's really asking for Christianity to be reimagined as a form of activism. Christians are to go out and love the world because Jesus loved the world. Uh, the Christian message should be one of acceptance and unconditional welcome because that's how Jesus treated people. Uh, Christians should go out and found orphanages and start soup kitchens and build hospitals. All sorts of things that tangibly change the world. That's what Jesus was all about. That's what we should be all about. Well, I want to be, be careful because I'm thankful. Even when people misunderstand Jesus' message, when they do good things in the world, that is a blessing. And so I am thankful for the many churches who have lost the emphasis on the message of Jesus and yet have done wonderful things like starting schools in impoverished areas and worked to overturn unjust laws. All of that is good. And yet, we got to keep the focus where Jesus kept the focus. If he at his core was a preacher, as what Luke is saying, and he has given us the task of preaching ourselves, we can't let mission drift set in. Uh, years ago, I went overseas in a very impoverished part of the world and saw some humanitarian work being done. And it was done by an organization that had a Christian-sounding name. And, uh, but I, I knew that that particular organization actually had a rule that even if you were a Christian, you were not allowed to evangelize while you were on their dime, on, on the clock. Well, later on, I found out that that, in fact, used to be a missions organization that was dedicated to evangelizing and doing humanitarian work along the way. But over time, the humanitarian work became the center, and eventually the message of the good news of salvation for sinners was lost altogether. Uh, we need to be so careful about never losing the good news of Jesus as our primary mission. We need to Week after week, expect that that is what we would do together. We would preach Jesus Christ crucified and the salvation for sinners. And realize that there's a calling on each of us to go and make disciples in whatever way that we can to keep our focus on that message. And now, there is a balance to be struck here. I'm not for a second saying that Christians shouldn't do humanitarian work or that churches even shouldn't be involved in ministries of mercy. 
We just need to keep them in their proper place, remembering they flow out of the preaching of the gospel. They are not itself the preaching of the gospel. Uh, as a church, a couple of ways we try and do this together. We took a benevolence offering uh, earlier in the service. Uh, all those funds go toward meeting very tangible needs, helping people, both inside our church and increasingly to people outside our church. Uh, when we do that, we are not imagining that the material support we're giving is meaningless. It is a real help. And yet we know that people need Jesus more than anything else. And so we want, we want them to receive help at all levels. So we share the gospel. Uh, si similarly with our English as a Second Language program, we provide top-notch English help. Praise God. Thank you for those of you who volunteer to make that happen. But it's with a hope that they would be conversant in the language of salvation, that they would know Christ and know that their sins are forgiven in him. Uh, brothers and sisters, let's never allow the good news that Jesus came to make possible to be preached. Let's never allow that to shift away from the center of our ministry, both as a church or as you as an individual. Well, Jesus preached that he was the Messiah. That's what his words revealed. But what his words revealed about the people listening is just as important. That brings us to our second point. The words of Jesus reveal our spiritual poverty, verses 22 through 30. The reaction he got was mixed. Uh, people were both delighted and beginning to doubt. We're told in verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Wow, what a great sermon. What a great preacher. He is smooth, such power. People are impressed. And yet they're not quite ready to receive his words. Uh, notice what comes next. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Uh, wait a second. I know this guy. I remember him when he was knee high. I remember him running around with snot on his nose and everything. And he's calling us poor? I mean, he's from the same place as us. I don't see him with riches. Messiah? Really? He's Joseph's son. No, no, this, this is too much. You, you can hear the objections beginning to be whispered between people. As often as the case with Jesus, things that are whispered and quiet, or even in the quiet of the heart, Jesus brings out into the open to confront. Uh, Jesus tells them what's going on on the inside. Verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician heal yourself. Uh, ancient doctors had a bit of a credibility problem. Uh, they were practicing medicine with less practice than doctors today. And so they often prescribed uh, medicine that ended up doing more harm than good. So people often wanted to see the doctor take his own medicine to prove it was safe. Uh, I thought about how this uh, loose analogy to TV in the 90s, um, watch too much TV in the 90s, full confession here. And uh, there was one particular commercial that would come on, very effective, but not because of the guy presenting. Uh, the, the presenter was monotone, he talked about technical details of things that uh, on the surface weren't all that interesting. He was, his audience was clear. He was talking to people suffering from male pattern baldness. 
And he was telling them about this brochure he would send them and all these different strategies and all this different stuff. And again, the presentation was not why this was effective. It was at the end of the commercial that he always ended the same way. He said, and remember, I'm not just the chairman for Hair Club for Men. I'm also a client. And then they put up a picture, the same guy giving the presentation, with a little bit more acreage that is barren on the top of his head compared to the lush, full head of hair that he had at that moment. And, and that side-by-side -side comparison showed you this works, and this guy took it himself to prove it, right? Well, that's essentially what they're asking Jesus to do. Jesus, prove it. Uh, give us something rock hard that we can know what you're saying is true, and then we will believe. And, and they, Jesus knows exactly what it is that they want. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, Jesus, why don't you sling up a sign for us? Why don't you whip up some type of wonder? Do a miracle. Do something flashy so there'll be no doubt and then we'll believe you. Now, this is entirely backward. They want to see in order to believe. But in fact, you need to believe, and only then are you ready to receive a sign. Uh, Jesus knows this, and so he responds back in kind, exposing their failure of their faith. Verse 25, uh, verse 24, he said to them, uh, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Uh, in fact, this is a long pattern that's gone on. Men who bring God's words to his people are rejected. And then he gives two biblical examples, both showing the deficiency of their faith. In 25 through 26, he gives the example of Elijah. Uh, this afternoon would be a great thing for you to study, 1 Kings 17. Elijah is in a, something like exile. The, Israel has a really rotten king, Ahab. And God sent Elijah away, both to keep him safe and as a sort of judgment upon Israel for their wickedness. Uh, while he's away, God's been providing miraculously, first through ravens, and now God sends him into Gentile territory. He sends him to a widow's house in Sidon. Uh, a woman who is penniless in the middle of a famine, who's running out of hope and just about to run out of food. Uh, she knows that this is going to be her last meal, and she tells Elijah that her plan is to bake it for her and her, her son to have one final meal, and then for them to die together. Uh, to that woman, God sends his words. He tells her to give her final meal to the prophet Elijah. And if she does, then God will make sure she doesn't die in the famine. Both she and her son will have more than enough to eat. Now notice, she has to believe before she receives the miracle sign. And she does. She bakes the meager little morsel. She gives it to the prophet. He eats it. And then she receives the sign. God makes sure that her jar of flour and her jar of oil never run out. And they have enough food to last the entire famine. Uh, the pattern is, is obvious. You believe and then you receive the sign. Uh, same thing in the second one. Uh, this time it's his successor, Elisha, coming after. You can find this one in 2 Kings 5. Elisha had a Syrian general by the name of Naaman 
who contracted leprosy and came knocking on his door. Leprosy was horrible. That was a, a terrible way to die. No known cure. So Naaman showed up having heard that there's a prophet that might be able to cure him. Uh, Elisha told him, okay, if you, you want to be cured, this is what you got to do. You got to go to the Jordan River and dip yourself in it seven times and you'll be cured. Uh, Naaman's response is anger and unbelief. Uh, he said, I'm not going to go wash in that dirty river. I had rivers back home in Syria. I didn't have to come all this way for this terrible river. But then the key part of the story, his servants come up to him and say, Master, 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 have you not received a powerful word from the Lord? Will you not do it? That's the main point of the story. Naaman is faced with the question, will he believe? And only then to receive the sign. And he does. He goes and he washes. And lo and behold, after the seventh time, God does the miracle. He is healed. Now, Jesus' point in all this is that there is a way that faith works. You believe before you receive a sign. You cannot demand of God proof ahead of time. Uh, you cannot act as if God owes you rock-hard proof before you will trust him. No, God wants us to have faith. These Gentiles serve as examples of the type of faith that all of us should have. But realize that little detail. These Gentiles serve as this example. Uh, to a Jew in that day, this would be worse than a slap across the face. To be compared negatively to a, a widow Gentile woman. To be compared negatively to a leprous Gentile soldier. That, that is unheard of. And yet Jesus very, so intentionally puts this together. To reveal the poverty of their hearts. When the words of Jesus come. You must believe. Before you will receive any sort of sign. Now realize that same dynamic is at work today. We cannot ask or demand of Jesus. Any sort of proof. Before we are fit to believe. I once sat with a. Uh, a young man who told me that he would not believe in Jesus because God had not given him proof. So I asked him what, over the course of a conversation, what sort of proof do you want? I mean, he's left you a world filled with beautiful complexity to testify to the reality that he made it. Uh, he's given you the moral compass in your own heart to know right from wrong, to show you that there is a lawgiver. What sort of proof do you want? He told me, what I want is God to literally write words in the sky. I want him to write out, I asked him what? He said, I want him to write out that Jesus is the only way to be saved in the sky. And I asked him, if God did that, don't you think you might, might just think that a Christian's playing tricks on you with sky writing? And he said, uh, yeah, you know, you're right. And it turned out there was no amount of proof that would ever be enough. Because the problem is not proof. The problem is that our hearts don't want to believe. Because of what believing would say about us. None of us likes to be exposed as spiritually impoverished, enslaved, blinded, oppressed. We want to think that we've got it together. 
that surely if anyone understands how things ought to be, it's us. But that's not the message that the words of Jesus bring us. And it's a hard word, but it's a word you must believe if you were to receive the salvation he will bring. Now the crowd, they responded with murderous hostility. Uh, verse 28, when these, they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. I think Dr. Phil Riken's right that these people believe Jesus has committed blasphemy. So they are giving him the punishment fit for blasphemy to stone him. You either throw rocks at him or you throw him at rocks. And in this case, they're going to push him off the cliff, making Jesus meet the rocks himself. Now, thankfully, their murderous intents are not allowed to come to pass. In verse 30, we're told that Jesus was able to pass through them. We're not told how or why. Maybe it was a miracle that God did from heaven. Uh, maybe Jesus convinced them with some plausible argument. I don't know. But the end result is that Jesus walks through the crowd and walks out of the town and out from the place he was born, never to return. Now consider what's happened in this moment. They have rejected the Messiah that's long, long been waited for and hoped for. Uh, they have heard the very words of God from the very word of God. But they would not believe him. And they would not receive him. And so now all that's left for them is condemnation. Uh, what a somber way for this first sermon Jesus is recorded in Luke's gospel of preaching. What a somber way for it to end. And it's really a preview of what's coming. As his popularity will grow until one day the people will turn on him. And the leaders and the Romans will conspire to, uh, together to make sure they never hear from him again, so they think. By killing him, crucifying him, and putting an end to this troublemaker once and for all. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, we should not expect to get any other reaction than the one Jesus did. From the very words that are good news to sinners if they will believe and receive. Uh, don't be shocked when people are not just not interested, but outright angry over the words of Jesus and the Bible because of what they reveal about the human heart. It's a hard thing for us to accept that we are pitiable, penniless sinners before God, that we are powerless and need God to rescue us, that we are blind and need to be shown the way. Yet that is the bad news that leads to the good news. Uh, I think there's lots of wisdom that we need to use as we present the good news of Jesus for this reason. Uh, not because we're afraid of that reaction from people, but because very often it takes people time. To, to, sometimes it takes God doing a work of humbling them for them to be ready to receive by believing the words of Jesus. Uh, I think very often, in particular, people close to us, our family and our closest friends, uh, there are times where we get to be prophetic and, and just tell them straight on what it is that they need to do. But more often than not, we have to take the slow way, maybe the way with some service and love, to come alongside and encourage and pray, most importantly, to pray, that the Holy Spirit would do this work within them that we're incapable of doing, to set them free from the bondage of sin and the devil.
I think the most center application for all of us this morning, though, is that of joy. Uh, I realize that Jesus came to people that were his own and they didn't receive him. That's what John told us, right? But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Brothers and sisters, consider what it is that has happened when you have believed and you have received the gift of the great year of the Lord, the graciousness of God and the salvation of your soul from Jesus. Uh, Once you were in chains, but now you're free. Once you were blind, but now you see. Once you were pitiable and poor, and now you have the greatest of all riches, the very riches of heaven that are yours because Jesus died for your sins and rose for your justification. So brothers and sisters, whatever you have happened this next week, don't expect utopia to break out. Don't expect your life somehow to all of a sudden be easy and there'll be no more difficulties. Don't expect people to, well, to accept you and love you the way you should. But do remember that the great year of the Lord's favor is here. Uh, That the Messiah has come. And that is reason for your heart to rejoice and to have hope for all the days that are coming when one day his reign will be seen on this earth and you will have unending joy with him. I love that hymn, And Can It Be? Uh, One of the stanzas captures so beautifully what it is we have received from Christ. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Brothers and sisters, Jesus has the power to save. So believe and receive the grace that he has brought. Let's pray.